How many of you grew up with a mom or dad um, who, before you uh, took a little overnight trip, maybe to spend the night at a friend's house or a camping trip, summer camp, something like that, you know, got the speech? And uh, maybe the, you know, as, as your mom was handing you the, the sack lunch she had prepared for the travel to camp or before, you know, she handed you the, the little bag of overnight supplies to go spend the night with your sister, she would give you those 42 things that she wants you to remember. And in rapid succession, these things would just tumble out of her mouth. And, and you know they're all important, you knew it then, but it's kind of a random amalgamation of what was in your, your mom's heart or mind at that particular moment. And it would include questions like, did you make your bed? Go make your bed. Did you put your shoes away? If not, go put them away. And remember, say please and thank you like your dad and I have taught you. And be respectful to Joey's parents. Don't be mean to his little sister. She has a crush on you, but that doesn't mean you're going to end up getting married. I'm telling you what grandma used to tell me. Be sweet, be kind, be nice. Oh, and brush your teeth. And then as she maybe even, you know, drew you close for that last little hug, she would remind you that, you know, Joey's mom always makes you bacon and eggs, and you have an orthodontist appointment on Monday, and Dr. Vincent doesn't want to find bacon and eggs still in your teeth, so please, please brush your teeth. And as she was hugging you, she might even back away and say, did you put on deodorant? You go upstairs right now. And I mean, it was like this total uh, speech that you knew wasn't prepared, but it was just overwhelming to you in one sense. You know, there's actually a, a, a section we're entering right now and that is more weighty even than your mom's speech because it is from the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, but it's just one rapid-fire uh, commander instruction after another. And some of them are clearly related and some of them don't seem to be related. There's actually a literary term for this kind of rapid-fire instruction. For those of you who would be interested, it's called paranesis. Your mother had no idea about that term in all likelihood. She just knew that you needed some words of instruction and exhortation before you walked away for the night or the week. And you know, there's a similar thing that's taking place in Paul's heart, I think, that as he is writing the letter to the Romans, he's saying, oh, there's so much that you need to know, but also it's connected to what he's just taken 11 chapters to describe. So we're not untethering this from the mercies of God, as Paul wrote of in Romans 12, verse 1. He gives us uh, approximately 30 commands in this chapter uh, that are tied to the mercies of God. So I want to ask you to open your Bibles again to Romans 12 and find verse 6 this morning. We're going to read through verse 16 and uh, save a little bit for a couple of weeks out. There's just no way to go through all of this with the care that we need to. But in Romans 6, Paul says, and I'm picking up, we worked through verse 5 last week. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving... The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. 
Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Although Paul will continue those brief and pointed exhortations, we're going to pause there for today. And as we always do, let's pray together and ask for the Holy Spirit's illumination. Our God and Father, thank you again for your living word. Thank you that you have given us truth, not just to order our lives by, but truth that transforms us. Would you continue that good work today? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you are for us. You are the living word. You are the one who brings strength to our souls day by day. You are the one that satisfies the great hunger and thirst of our hearts. And we look to you as our Savior, our Lord, our King, our friend. All that you are amazes us, and there is so much more yet to be discovered. Would you give us insight today that we may know um, how great your love for us is. And dear Holy Spirit, thank you that in Christ's absence you have been sent and you are not inferior to him in any way. You are God and you are God who dwells in us. And I pray that as you take up your residence within us today and manifest yourself to us, that you would illuminate our minds that we may understand your truth and that you would empower our wills that we may believe it and obey it that you may transform our very souls so that the thoughts that we think, the words that we speak, the deeds that we perform would be an evidence that you, by your great power, have taken hold of our lives in their entirety and we are true worshipers. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we seek your blessing upon this gathering and time in the word, praying this for the glory of your great name, and for the joy and transformation of our hearts, for the joy and salvation of those who have yet to truly understand your love, Christ's sacrifice, and the way of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now go back to verse six with me, and as Paul, I wanna tie this back to the verses preceding this where remember that Paul had said, be renewed in your minds. Don't be conformed to the world, be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And now he, is, he has slipped into a really important part of the Christian life, and remember the verses preceding this, he had said, you're, you're one body, so Christianity is not an individual sport if I can put it that way. Olympics are still kind of on our minds today, aren't they? No, it's a team sport. And, and there are many members that comprise one body and all are essential. Now, here's another thought that he is taking us directly to in verse six, and that all members are gifted. It's not explicitly stated here. You have to go to 1 Corinthians 14 for that particular truth, but it's implied here. We're all gifted by the Spirit. You don't manufacture your own spiritual gifts. I don't do that. We don't look at a list and go, I think I'd like to be you know, gifted in C and F and Y you know, from a, from a big list, as it were. No, we submit ourselves to the Spirit. And he tells us two important things about the gifts. Look at verse six again. Having gifts that differ 
according to the grace given to us. The Spirit's gifts are unique from person to person. If you've not studied through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, you should do that sometime. Read it this afternoon when you have a little moment and and set aside some quiet time. Uh, It is more fully explained in that particular chapter, but here Paul summarizes uh, identical truth by saying we have gifts that differ, and it's according to grace. Um, There's no standing in this church that comes as a result of your performance. You know, we didn't, when you came in to find a seat this morning, we didn't put the super spiritual people in the front row, or actually your preference would be the back row for some of you anyhow. You're not, you're not seated according to rank. Um, grace levels all of that. Grace gives all of us a seat at the Lord's table. Secondly, the Spirit's gifts are useful for all persons, and that's where Paul's word of exhortation at the end of verse 6 become so plain. Let us use them. You're all gifted, he's saying. Well, put them, to, put them to use. Let us use them. Now, if you dig into this, Paul, as one author says, Paul is then not just listing gifts here in the following verses. He is exhorting each member of the community to use his or her own gift diligently and faithfully to strengthen the body's unity and help it to flourish. And he gives us a sampling there are other gift lists in the New Testament. Not one of them is comprehensive. And when you put them all down side by side, you'll see some, uh, some overlap between the lists. You'll see some unusual things, some curious things for us. And Paul just chooses seven of them as a sampling today. And notice where he begins. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment and... and Uh, give you a a little framework to think uh, about prophecy because it's really important and it may in fact be underutilized. It's important for us first of all to understand that little phrase in proportion to our faith. He doesn't mean you exercise it, you know, if you have great faith and you exercise it to a great extent. If you have small faith and you exercise it, you know, to small faith. No, the proportion that he's speaking of is actually according to the faith or the gospel, we could say, or the word of God. And when you begin to compare some of the other extensive uh, uh, teaching passages in the New Testament with relationship to the gift of prophecy, you realize something about it, and there's a simple definition for you there. It is a word or a message that one person might speak to another individual or even to the church as a whole, but there are some qualifiers that need to be put on it. No no person who exercises a gift of prophecy will ever add one line of inspired, inerrant, authoritative scripture. We believe we refer to the the Bible or the canon of scripture as being complete. We're not going to add anything to it. We're not going to take away from it. God inspired it. God has been preserving it through the years. We, We can be confident there's not one part of it that's been lost, but neither you nor I even under direction of the Holy Spirit, are ever going to speak a word that should be added like a 67th book of the Bible would appear. Now, as a matter of fact, when you begin to study prophecy and you go to places like 1 Corinthians 14, where it's more fully explained, you begin to see things like this, that prophecy is designed by God to build, encourage, console, and instruct the body of Christ in the context of God's truth. There's a framework Turn to 1 Corinthians 14 for just a moment. You're in Romans. Uh, It's the next book over. 
And I, I wish we could read the whole chapter. I'm only going to read a few sample verses, but these are critical ones. Paul says in verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Then he comes to the end of verse 5, and he reinforces that. So the church, it's the person who prophesies, uh, does so with a view of building up the church. Then skip all the way to verse 31. This is intriguing to me. He actually says you can all prophesy one by one, so it would be an orderly thing, right? It's not just some random you know, shouting match like a press conference at the White House sometimes. So that, here's, here's what's in view, all may learn and all be encouraged. Now look at this, verse 32, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. Now that may seem a little unusual, like what, what, what is that about? Well, he's actually pointing us the direction that a few other scriptures will reinforce, that, that a word or message like this is always subject to the evaluation of scripture. And that's why Paul says in Romans 12 that you prophesy uh, according to faith, in proportion to the faith. Um, a few other passages. Um, well, you're already in 1 Corinthians 14. Back up uh, two verses to verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh what is said. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 21, where, the, where Paul writes, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. What's the implication there? You might get some things that aren't good. It doesn't mean they're outright heresy. It just might be you know, out of place at that moment. It might not be appropriate for the setting or the individual need. 1 John 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So just because somebody walks into a place and says, I'm a prophet, here's a word from the Lord, doesn't mean we go, ooh, you know, do tell. Um, years ago at our last church, a, a couple showed up one Sunday and uh, introduced themselves and uh, I was glad to meet him but then I was really intrigued because they said we've been we are prophets and we've been sent by God to evaluate your church I was like well great this will be interesting (laughs) and they came over a number of weeks and would sit in the very back and um, didn't get a ton of feedback from them other than one little thing the the wife would laugh out loud uh, and it wasn't always because I said something funny from the pulpit. It was just like, it was odd. And I'm thankful they didn't make a big stir, but after a few weeks, they came back to me and they said, you know, the Lord has told us to move on. Your church is doing great. And I was like, great, okay. <laughs> Weird. I, part of me wishes they had actually, you know, offered some words so I could have put into practice the things that the Bible is saying. Is this so? First of all, does it square with Scripture? There are other strong warnings In the New Testament, there's an example given to us of believers from the town of Berea, and this is recorded in Acts 17.11, and some of the same terminology we've been seeing in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Thessalonians 5, and 1 John 4. These Jews were more noble, Luke writes, than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with all eagerness, so it's like, yeah, tell us, preach to us, teach to us. Give us a word from the Lord. But here it is, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. 
So, I mean, think about this. Paul comes in, is a bona fide apostle, a capital A apostle, no less, right? A guy who can perform signs and wonders, uh, whose credentials were long, but that's not the primary thing they're looking at. When Paul would preach or teach, they would open the, their scriptures, which in all likelihood were Old Testament scriptures, right? Because the New Testament was being written at that point. And basically they're like, are these things so? Paul said A. Does the Old Testament say A? Paul says B. Can we find it here? And they're commended because they were testing the ministry of the word. I'm going to tell you there are, there are a number of things about this prophetic gift that uh, are, are still a little fuzzy to me. But one thing I'm certain of, beloved, if, if God moves upon an individual's heart or even in the context of a community group or somebody says, you know, I just feel led of the Lord to say, the rest of us who hear that ought to be thinking, first of all, well, does that square with what we know clearly from the Bible? The second thing we always have to be alert to is that as 1 John 4 mentioned and Galatians 1 reminds us, among other passages, there are a lot of false prophets who've been sent out into the world. In Galatians 1, Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then listen to this word. But even if we... Paul, in the we, right? Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. It's a strong word of warning, isn't it? So no prophetic gift is gonna be exercised in a bizarre or unusual way or even a new way that would, would add, truly add to God's revelation. It's gonna operate within the context of what, what God has already revealed in his, in his inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. And it's never gonna contradict the gospel itself. It's never gonna provide new revelation about Jesus Christ, something that hasn't been uh, revealed to us, to us in, in the you know, last 4,000 years since the scripture began to uh, be given. And if somebody shows up and says, well, Jesus isn't really the son of God, ooh, I mean, warning lights and signals ought to go off. Well, Jesus' death on the cross really isn't necessary. <laughs> Woo! Sorry. That's a little extra uh, instruction with prophecy because there's a lot going on today. And, and I th- when I say today, I mean in this present age. And as we draw closer and closer to the time of Christ's return, you better believe that more and more false prophets will show up and false teaching and new novel ideas and bizarre ideas and we need to be alert to it all right let's press on gift number two service it's a very generic word for a wide variety of ministries and and going back to the text to romans 12 paul simply says uh, if service in our serving that is again we're getting back to the idea of use it serve number three exhortation Uh, this has a wide spectrum of meanings as well uh, this is a gift that could be exercised even from the pulpit, as I'm doing today. Uh, some of this preaching would, would be exhortation, but it can also happen in private. And it's interesting that more often the term seems to be used in behind-the-scenes kind of ministry. We would, we would use terms like counseling or uh, just offering your friendship to a lonely person or giving a, a fresh 
word of encouragement to someone who's lost heart, as one author writes. Barnabas is a prime example of encouragement, He's, for his name means the son of encouragement. And evidently this gift uh, is used in a variety of ways. Then Paul says, he mentions a contribution, the one who contributes in generosity. That just has the idea of somebody is moved by the Spirit to share with someone else. And it's not confined to the people who have just a ton of leftovers, you know, like, well, you know, I paid all the bills and I bought a new car and house is in good order and I don't know what to do with the extra 49000 in my checking account this month. No, that, that's not the point. No, the Spirit moves on a person to share a resource, a, a gift, a meal, something, though. Um, and, and it's an act of generosity with liberality, is what Paul says. Then the one who leads. And this is a term that does mean to guide or direct, and there are multiple other references. That's what ref apostrophe S has to. Multiple other references in the New Testament to pastors and elders in particular. So we're not the only ones who would be gifted of God to lead in this particular way. It's a, it's a gift that can be uh, seen and manifest itself in other roles within the context of the church, but it is interesting that the term is used uh, in 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 5, Hebrews 13, 1 Thessalonians 5, just as a few examples. It can also mean to care for, not just like to set the pace and go, we're going this way, but it also has the idea of caring for or even giving aid, and it's interesting that it's tucked between contributing in generosity to people of needs and mercy, so maybe contextually there's less of an emphasis on, you know, like I'm the general who's going to lead the charge into this battle than it would be uh, giving care and direction to somebody who, uh, who is in a difficult spot. And that does bring us to that last one, mercy. The, the gift of mercy is ultimately a reflection of the Lord's mercy for those who are in need or distress. One author says, care for those in distress, whether aliens, orphans, and widows. For those are often mentioned together in the Old Testament. Those who are physically infirm, the sick, the dying. And notice how Paul says, you exercise that gift, not reluctantly, but cheerfully. Doesn't our world need cheerful people today? Some of you say, I could use a little cheer in my soul. Yeah, you're not alone. But set your heart on the mercies of God. The very thoughts that Andrew was sharing earlier, this whole world's gonna pass away. You can't take one thing with you that you have right now. And that's a bummer, because I mean, let's all face it, we probably have stuff we like. Maybe it's an heirloom, it just means a lot to you because it was your mother's or your grandmother's or something like that, or it's, it's a, you know, it's a kind of a cool toy that you worked long and hard for, and, and you know, you spend time in the garage playing with that thing and working and fixing it up, making it better. Well, it's not going with you. It's true, these earthly relationships, as we know them, are gonna change, but what's coming is so much better than what even our best days now and our best stuff right now and our best experiences right now. We are people who have an eternal cheer, and God says, when you see someone who needs your mercy, do it cheerfully. I think to summarize the spiritual gifts, we could just say, why don't we start asking two questions? Holy Spirit, what should I say in this situation and Holy Spirit, what should I do? It's, it's okay. I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, earnestly desire the, the greater gifts, and prophecy is one that he goes to at that point. But he shows us first the way of love. 
And, and when the Lord, by his mercy, transforms your soul from being a sinful, selfish rebel into a true child of God, confident in your relationship, first of all, with him, and assured that he will be with you, that he's gonna supply everything you need, and that begins to transform your relationships with other people, you're in a totally different position to live your life than those who don't know God personally. And then the Spirit comes to dwell in you, and he, like, he, he begins to grow Christ's love in your heart for people that you would never love of your own, because they're, they're not actually your earthly family, not by biology or DNA, but he builds a different kind of family, And so that love overflows, and sometimes love needs to speak a word. And sometimes love needs to just get to work. Don't get caught up on, what's my gift, what's my gift? You you just submit your heart to the Spirit day by day and let him grow love in you for other people, and he's gonna prompt you and gift you at the perfect moment in the perfect way. And beloved, I don't actually see anything in Scripture that says once he gives a gift, you always have it and operate with it. Maybe, I don't see that definitively spelled out. That means you might be gifted for one moment in time. A prophetic word that actually like, was a life-shifting moment for the individual you speak it to. And, and maybe you never speak another prophetic word. An act of mercy that blesses an individual in that moment. And, and you never have a merciful thought in your soul again. <laughs> That's doubtful, but. Don't get hung up on the mystery of gifts. What's my gift? No, who's your Lord who is the spirit, who are the people around you, and how do they need to be loved? All right, let's, let's press on here. Look at the next uh, section with me. Verse nine begins, let love be genuine. We're really talking, what, we're entering a section now that I, I want to um, put this heading over all of it, sincere love. Now, it's, it's gonna appear just on this screen with those few phrases underneath it. Um, but after some study and thought and consultation with my my favorite commentaries this week and such, I am persuaded that this is a broader heading, uh, that most of what follows can fall underneath sincere love. And part of that is even in the way that Paul wrote this. We don't need to get bogged down in that. We, we translate it, rightfully so, into the English, let love be genuine. But it's almost more like he just is saying, okay, next section, sincere love. What does sincere love look like? And look at where it begins, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. He, he is talking about a sincere way of living out our faith that we have received by mercy from Christ. That means we're gonna love what God loves and we're gonna hate what he hates. And even in seeking to love other people, we can't act like sin in us or in them is no big deal. We need to be people of the gospel. So to abhor what is evil means that we actually, we actually find repugnant, find to be repugnant what God himself says is morally objectionable. Likewise, we're people who want to, who, who want to attach ourselves firmly, that's what holding fast means, to what is morally excellent. And God's the one who decides and defines all these things. One author wrote, love is not genuine when it leads a person to do something evil or to avoid doing what is right. As defined by God and his word, genuine love, the real thing, will lead the Christian to that good, which is the result of the transformed heart and mind. Abhor what is evil, hold fast what is good. Then look at verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Because we are a family, we need to cultivate warm, 
tender affection for one another. Uh, And don't you love it that Paul is saying, hey, with reference to the family you're a part of, be devoted. That's what this kind of love is about. And then look at the next phrase, outdo one another in showing honor. That is, individually, you assume the responsibility to lead the way by your example. There's a, it's a different kind of competition. Now, this, this could be perverted. We have an amazing capacity to turn even the, the commands of love into legalistic requirements, right? Uh, so he's not trying to create a, an artificial sense of competition, but he's using terminology that points us in that direction. And with reference to honoring one another, he's saying outdo one another. It, it should almost be that awkward, you know, when you stand at the door, you have these moments where you, you stop and you're like, you go first, no, you go, no, you go, no, you go, no, you go, and then eventually somebody has to go, or, you know, you bump shoulders as you're going in the way, the, uh, going through the door. Well, that's kind of what Paul is saying. We are to be people who recognize and praise one another's accomplishments, who defer to one another in situations where we say there's nothing eternal at stake. I have an opinion, I have a strong opinion, but I'm, I'm happy to roll with yours right now. Then Paul moves into a category that we'll call eager service. Look at verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. With reference to your zeal, and that's the word he just used with leadership, by the way. Didn't really talk about that. But he's saying eagerness, not, not slothful. You're not gonna shrink back or be reluctant. Don't, don't be timid about this. And then he uses the word fervent, which has the idea of, of, of boiling what's inflamed. There's heat there. There's heat that, that creates a, a, a bubbling in the spirit, as it were, that says, no, I, I want this opportunity. I want to be involved in this particular way. Fervent in spirit. Another commentator writes, Paul is exhorting us to allow the Holy Spirit to set us on fire to open ourselves to the Spirit as he seeks to excite us about the rational worship to which the Lord has called us. Do you find that in your soul? Some of us are just exhausted right now. Life has been, you know, like this endless loop of hard and difficult and scary and fearful and anxiety kind of rules the day. Well, this is a time for you to say, Lord, just would you expel all of that from the pot and kindle a new flame and put this kind of fervency in my soul? fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Paul uses the terminology of a low-status servant, slaves. So it's not about self, it's not about tangents, it's not about the, the fringe ideas or novel movements of the age, but we're people about service to the Lord. So an eager service. Then he talks about what I'll describe as evident hope. And again, three phrases there. Rejoice in hope, verse 12. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Now let's break this down, but it really all does fit together. First of all, with reference to our hope. And again, let me remind you, the Christian's hope is a confident expectation of good. There's good right now for us to enjoy because our sins are forgiven. Salvation is granted by grace. We are true uh, adopted children of the Most High God. There's an inheritance that's reserved in heaven for us right now. Peter says it's incorruptible, undefiled, not going to fade away. Those are present realities that build our present expectation for good. And there's more to come. So a confident expectation for good. That's Christian hope. And because of that hope, with reference to that hope, We're a glad people, a joyful people. 
It's why we do come together on Sunday mornings, among other days of the week, to sing. Some of you say, I can't sing. And others say, well, I, I think I can by God's grace. And nobody's here judging the quality of what comes you know, out, of your, out of your mouth. We, we are just people of joy because we have a real hope. And that's what leads us to the, the second part of this. And it's all wrapped in together. I mean, we're the ones who, who know what God has done for us, who expect the Lord to return soon uh, because of this great hope, but we're presently patient in tribulation. Part of the reason you and I can endure the distress of this moment of life is our hope. There's really hard stuff. There's not a day that goes by that, that my heart doesn't run through and, and pray through uh, this church family. And it's the same for many of you. And, and sometimes we're even gathered together, maybe a community group or a men's meetup, and we start sharing requests. And we look at the list, and some of those things have been on there for months, if not years. I'm like, Lord, when's that going to change? When's that person gonna really repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ? When is that financial need gonna be met? When is that person gonna be healed? And you just kinda feel like, ah. But God says, no, there's a real hope, so endure that distress. He's not just saying, suck it up, soldier. No, he's saying, because of who I am, what I am doing, what you will experience one day, hope, endure. So we patiently endure tribulation and then the third one which really is related if you are a person of hope you will be in constant prayer won't you and you'll do that for two reasons one because the needs are so great and you realize i don't have the capacity to do this you know some needs could be met just through a gift of generosity a contribution to go back to the earlier part of this passage like that's easy write the check you know venmo the money we we can meet that need make the meal but there are other needs where like, Lord, this is, this is not about a financial gift or stepping in to give assistance for a couple of hours. This is a need that's so significant, so great. You have to be the one who answers it. So that's the first part of it. But the second side is uh, we, we know that prayer really does make a difference. Sometimes instantaneously, and sometimes it is years, if not decades down the road, but prayer makes a difference. And so Paul says, with reverence to your prayers, persevere devotedly. That's what be constant means. Persevere devotedly. So we endure hardship because of our hope and we persevere even in prayer because of the great hope that we have. Now, final area, countercultural ethic. That sounds fancy and maybe even a little, I don't know, esoteric. Countercultural ethic. What do we mean? Well, look at verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We enter into the needs. We participate by sharing what is necessary. Matt reminded us and thanked us last week for our participation in the Deacons and Benevolence Fund. It really is amazing. Um, I'm thankful to have a seat at the table when the deacons talk through these needs and then even see some of the text threads and other forms of communication where we're getting little updates and follow-ups. And this is what happened. And I talked to so-and-so and yeah we're gonna tackle this need and and so the body even though like there's not comprehensive knowledge we don't tell everybody all the details of the needs uh frequently and most often we we just announce it generically but i'm telling you right now we are watching you as a church family generously contribute to the needs of the saints right here and i praise god for that i'm also blessed that many of you already practice hospitality. Now, it's a little different in our day and age than it was in first century uh, times, 
The kind of hospitality that Paul is exhorting them to show actually meant welcoming your home to people that really are strangers to you, but they are believers from another city or another area, and sometimes they are just traveling. Other times it's because the persecution has scattered a whole bunch of people out of Jerusalem. They lost their homes, they lost their businesses, and they're coming in to stay for who knows how long. That upset some of our worlds, wouldn't it? Hi, uh, I'm Danny, this is my wife Kristen, who are you? Uh, we're Matt and Colleen Parker, and you, know, you came from Steamboat Springs. We're like, great, nice to meet you. Yeah, and we attended you know, Steamboat Springs Church. And here's a letter from our, our pastor. It's a letter of commendation. And I read that thing, and I'm like, looks legit, Kristen. Like, do we have room? And, and my wife, who's more spirit-filled than I am, is like, yes, we do. I got the room ready right now. And, and so we welcome these strangers in. You know, and we're sitting down and we're having, you know, a, a meal together and learning a little bit of life history. And so, you know, Matt, Colleen, what, what's going on here? Boy, it's been rough. You know, that persecution has scattered a bunch of us and I'm, we haven't even talked to some other family and friends for weeks and we're not sure what we're gonna do and how long do you think you're gonna stay here? We don't know. See, that's a whole different kind of hospitality than, hey, wanna come over for supper? And some of us, struggled to, to be the, hey, want to come over for supper people, right? You see, we're, we're, too, we're too conditioned by, you know, Martha Stewart and Barefoot Contessa and, you know, the food network because we're like, well, I, I don't do that kind of hospitality. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not saying if you have a, a gift for fancy cuisine, you know, open your table. He's, he's actually talking about opening your heart to one another, where there's very much a sense of like, come in here, live life with us. You know, one of the things that strikes me about the context in which we serve, um, and, and, and we've experienced this a little bit, um, and we're so thankful for the body of Christ because you know, our, our little family moved out here kind of on our own. We don't have roots in Utah, we don't have family, uh, deep family roots here, so you know, it's, it's different. Growing up in South Carolina, I mean, we left my dad and two, sis- two of my three sisters and their families back there. Kristen has, you know, her, her parents were our next door neighbors for a bunch of years. We, you know, just having family around makes a difference. So you have not only people being transplanted in who need to find a new family, but you have others who because of their decision to follow Christ, and this is the more critical one, because of a decision to follow Christ means the loss of, of family traditions, some of them religious, some of them non-religious, the, the loss of a network, even of business relationships and all kinds of things, and suddenly a person who says, I do believe in Jesus, I do need his forgiveness, I do want that way of salvation, but, it, but a choice to follow Jesus will actually mean a loss of family. And God's design is that churches like ours become the new family. So that's why it is so important, even from when we walk in the doors here on Sunday morning, that it's not just a, oh, when will the service start? No, that's why we come in, and I mean, from the moment you drive in, you, your, your heart through your eyes needs to be up, looking around. Who's here? Who needs a little word of encouragement? Who needs a hug? Who needs me to pray with them? Who, who needs me to just sit next to them? Maybe even in silence. I mean, when you read the environment, there, there are those awkward moments where we mean well, but we're pressing somebody for information about how they're doing, and they're like, I'm not in a place to talk right now. Because even this place in Sunday morning should feel like coming home. 
And for many of us, it does. I thank you for that, but this is where I say, let's never be content. Even as I look out here this morning, some of you are pretty new with us. And uh, we're working at it. We're not perfect by any means. But beloved, when the mercies of God transform your life, this is the kind of stuff that happens and we should expect it. So we contribute to the needs of the saints and show hospitality. Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That means we simply enter into all of life with one another. And that can be a little bit of an emotional roller coaster because you can be in a conversation one moment where somebody is sorrowing a deep, deep need, a loss, a death, and, and the next moment find yourself you know, trying to rejoice with somebody who's announcing really exciting news. But that, that actually is the life rhythm of the church. John Stott writes in his commentary, love never stands aloof from, others people, from other people's joys or pains. Love identifies with them, sings with them, and suffers with them. You know, I, I recognize that for some of you, that'll cost you more than others. Those of you who are empathetic by nature, compassionate by nature, it, it's a little harder on you than those who aren't wired up quite that way. There's some people who can... They'll, they enter into it for a moment. They truly are sorry with you, but you know, by the time they drive off the property, they've kind of moved on to other things. And that doesn't mean they're less spiritual. It just means God wired them up differently. And I know some of you who, who've experienced significant hurts along the way can reach a point where like, I, I got no more bandwidth for this. And, and you begin to step back from it and try to build up some walls of protection. Can I just say, don't do that. You are uniquely designed and even gifted by the Lord to share those things. And whatever cost you bear now will be repaid to you in eternity one day. Our joy then actually corresponds to some of the suffering and sorrow now. That's a 2 Corinthians 4 thing. But don't, don't separate yourself from other people to say, but I, I've hurt so much, I, I can't hurt anymore. Oh, for Christ's sake, you can Live in harmony, verse 16, with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Let's just take all these together real, real quickly. And, and it's interesting, they're actually, um, he, he's using the same terminology for the way we think in each of these three phrases, okay? So there's a way to think. And the first, the first way, live in harmony, in a, in a more pedantic translation could go this way, think the same toward one another. That is, you are of the same mind. It's a Philippians 2 kind of thing. That means we agree with ourselves, and our our ultimate agreement is in Christ, that we need him, that he is all that he says he is. The gospel is that central place of agreement, so there's wide room for a variety of opinions and practices in multiple areas of life, but we still come together because we need Jesus and we know Jesus. And that's what guards us from thinking in a prideful way. That's what haughtiness is all about. It's an overbearing pride. It's an unwarranted self, sense of self-importance. Snobbery would be a helpful word here. Any of you see the video clips from uh, the Super Bowl last Sunday where Joe Burrow, you know, who's probably going to be a Hall of Fame quarterback if he can stay healthy over the next years, but was introducing himself to other players on the field. I mean, it's gold. It's gold. Here's a, here's a kid who's already like a franchise dude so highly regarded, so highly respected, you know, paid billions of dollars, 
And he's the guy who's introducing himself to players on the opposing team, and he just says, hi, I'm Joe. Loved watching you as I was growing up. And you can tell, even, I mean, this is one of those mic'd up things. Um, you can hear the other players respond, and, and there's this reciprocal respect that happens there. And how different that is from a lot of the trash talking that goes on in sporting events. And maybe Joe does that too, I don't know. But one of the opposing players actually says to him, love the way you play the game. I love the way you play the game. And I thought, what a beautiful illustration for you non-football fans, maybe not. Maybe you're like, could we move on from football? (laughs) But here's a man who doesn't have an unwarranted sense of self-importance, although he's really important in his little NFL world. And I thought, oh, that we as believers could operate with that same kind of humility. That we're never starstruck by one another or seeking to strike others with our stardom. We're, we're saying, no, Jesus is the one great one here. He's the one that we worship and praise, but hi, I, I'm Danny, so nice to meet you. Loved watching you grow up, or, or loved watching you growing up. That same kind of spirit. And then finally, Paul writes, associate with the lowly. And I was thinking, even early this morning, isn't that why we love Jesus? because he associates with the lowly. He was known as the friend of sinners. Spent time with tax collectors. Spent time with people that were the outliers. Marginalized, sometimes for good reasons, as as far as the community could see, but in his mind he's saying they're all precious. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, that's a rich passage. I want to close with this summary conclusion that I found helpful from one of the commentaries that I've, I've profited from in this whole Romans series. Stott writes, what a comprehensive picture of Christian love Paul gives us. Love is sincere, discerning, affectionate, and respectful. It is both enthusiastic and patient, generous and hospitable, benevolent and sympathetic. It is marked by both harmony and humility. Christian churches would be happier communities if we all loved one another like that. And I would say to you, gospel hope is a happy place because of that. Oh, lots of room to grow. We're not perfect, so let's not get comfortable and pat ourselves on the back and go, we got this. Oh, you're doing well, but let's continue it. Let's build on it. Let's become even more of this very kind of thing that Paul is describing here. So I'm I'm grateful, but at the same time, I'm hopeful that the best days for our church are still ahead. You know, one of the last things that uh, moms do when they send their kids off after they've given them the 42 things to remember, you know, whether it be for the slumber party or the week of camp, uh, is frequently to hug the child and say, I love you, and we'll pick you up tomorrow. Can I even cast this in the greater context? Your God loves you, and he has promised to return to pick us up. We might not even have to wait until tomorrow. He could show up today to go, kids, time to go. So live in the reality of the hope. Live in the reality of his love. Live in the great reality of his mercies that never come to an end. He's changing you. He's changing this church. He wants to change this valley, and he will. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your eternal love. Thank you for your infinite mercies. Thank you for your super abundant grace. Thank you for these words of exhortation 
words of hope, words of comfort, words of reminder, and even rebuke woven into this. But we receive all of it from your great heart of wisdom and love of salvation. Holy Spirit, would you cause us to be people who say moment by moment, what should I say, what should I do? We're thankful for what you've started in us personally, for what you've started here at this church, but would you continue, build it, grow it, and oh, that this would be the day that we would see our Savior face to face. Let it be today. As your heads are bowed and you're praying and meditating for a moment, is there a word the Spirit has put on your heart to share with somebody else today? Maybe even as you came in, you saw somebody who looked like they were a little discouraged or, or maybe even frazzled. Think of some of the parents with young children here. Man, Sunday is a chore to get them ready. Maybe there's someone here who just needs you to put your arm around them and say, I'm so thankful for you. How can I pray for you? Maybe you're aware of a need that you say, I, I could vend most some money right now or I could step into a particular gap that's opened up and serve that person or serve this family. Is there something the Holy Spirit has impressed you to do? Follow his leading. And just right now, commit yourself to it and say, Spirit of God, I'll speak what you tell me to speak. I'll do what you show me to do. Come Holy Spirit. Do that kind of powerful work in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.